0: Morning, Villas Church. Happy Labor Day weekend. Yeah, yeah. Happy Labor Day weekend. Um, we uh, we are grateful that we live in a country that affords us so many opportunities, including good and meaningful work. Uh, but as Christians, we know that at the end of the day, that um, that God is the one that has provided us good and meaningful work. Amen. And that His Son is the one who has done the best and the most meaningful work. Amen. And so, as Christians, we have so much to celebrate this weekend. I hope you are celebrating well. We'll talk a little bit about that at the end of our time together in Revelation chapter 19 here this morning. Um, if I haven't met you, I'm Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad to be with you this morning. And we are finishing up a summer sermon series we're calling Prayers of the Bible. And we've been working our way through many of the prayers of the Bible, from the Old Testament all the way now through the New Testament. We're kind of ending, uh, or beginning rather, uh, as soon as we could in the book of Genesis, kind of referring to some things that happened early on in the early chapters of Genesis. And now we're ending um, in one of the final chapters of Revelation here in Revelation 19. And um, we're going to be talking about the four hallelujahs this morning, the four hallelujahs. And if that word hallelujah seems like insider language, um, you're probably not alone. There are some terms that we use as Christians and that we use in church and that are used in the Bible. We use it because it's used in the Bible that, well, they might feel or seem or appear like uh, kind of insider language because it's not part of our, our typical daily vernacular. But the word hallelujah is actually a very simple word. I think most of you probably know what it means. If you don't know what the word hallelujah means, it's just a combination of two Jewish words, hallel and jah. It literally means praise God or praise the Lord. And so we sang a song this morning that, that used the letter A before it. So we say hallelujah sometimes or hallelujah sometimes and And what we're saying is praise the Lord. When you see that word on a screen or in a verse or you sing it in a song, it literally means praise God or praise the Lord. And praising the Lord is an important part of prayer. It's a very important part of prayer. Matter of fact, in our model prayer as Christians, it's called the Lord's Prayer. Some have called it the disciples' prayer because Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. Jesus begins the Lord's prayer with, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. It actually begins with praise. Jesus has taught us as his followers to begin our prayers with the praise of God. And so as we end our series in prayer here this morning, we're going to be asking this question. What kinds of things... Should we be praising God for in and through our prayers? If if prayer is a very uh, praise, rather is a very important and meaningful part of prayer, what should we be praising God for in and through our prayers? And as always, the question we're asking is, what does the Bible have to say about that? And if you're new with us at the Village Church, biblical authority is one of our highest values. It's actually our highest value, biblical authority and then gospel centrality. Everything we say, we say because it can be found in the Bible. And so on a Sunday morning, we're always asking the question, what does the Bible have to say about that? And in terms of the word hallelujah, we know that the Bible uses the word first in the book of Psalms. And in the book of Psalms, David and all of the psalmists use the word hallelujah to praise the Lord, to praise God for all kinds of things, which was probably maybe one of the thoughts in the back of your mind when I asked the question, what kinds of things should we praise God for in our prayers? You may have thought, well, Matt, all kinds of things. There's an endless number of things that we should be praising God for. But the last place that we find the word hallelujah in the Bible is here in Revelation. And I believe here in Revelation, we actually get a glimpse of the way that the Word is used in heaven, and my sense is that it should inform something of the way that we use the Word here on earth. That as we think about the way that hallelujah is used in heaven and the prayers of heaven, it should inform the way that we pray here on earth. And here in Revelation, we see the word hallelujah used to praise the Lord for four four specific things, I believe, and the first one's in verse 1 where it says, After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice, a great multitude in heaven, crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Glory and power belong to our God because he has accomplished our salvation. And so this morning, I think the first thing we're going to see here in Revelation 19 is that we will praise the Lord for our salvation in heaven. And so we ought to be praising the Lord for our salvation while we live and walk and sojourn here on earth. The question might be, well, what what salvation are we praising him for? And the key to this question is the phrase, after this. So when you read the the Bible and you see the word, therefore, we're always asking the question, right, why is it therefore? When we see phrases that say something like, after this, we're going to ask ourselves, after what? After what? After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah. Revelation uh, 19 comes logically after Revelation 18, right? And Revelation 18, we, saw, we see what the what is. It's the fall of Babylon. The, the, the host of heaven, this audience in heaven is praising God for the fall of Babylon. You might be thinking, well... <laughs> Matt, it's kind of odd, didn't the fall of Babylon happen like literally thousands of years ago? Like, is it, wasn't that an empire in the Old Testament? Didn't that happen a long, long time ago? Why is this all the way in Revelation 19? And I think part of the answer to that question is this, yeah, we first see Babylon in the Old Testament. We see Babylon as a nation that ruled much of the known world. It's an empire. It was a city of the capital city, Babylonia, of an empire that ruled the known world in a pretty brutal way. An empire that was against God, and an empire that was against God's people. An empire that used their political will to, well, to propagate their philosophies and their values over the whole known world. Those values were largely driven by things like sex, and money, and power. But eventually Babylon was defeated, and it was treated actually in the same way that it treated others. And if we fast forward to the New Testament, we find that in the New Testament, Babylon is used um, kind of symbolically, it reemerges as a symbol of brutal world systems, world systems that, that treat people poorly, that oppress people, that use brutal tactics, that are against God and are antagonistic to God, and that are against God's people and are antagonistic to His church, but they're obsessed with the same things—sex and money and power. Matter of fact, when the apostle Peter writes one of his letters, his first letter, at the end of it, he ends his letter this way, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. So obviously Peter is not in Babylon, he's nowhere even close to Babylon, but he's referring to a world system of the time that he's living under, the Roman government, the Roman world system that was brutal to those that it ruled. The Pax Romana was the the peace of Rome, but it was not wrought peacefully. Rome was brutal, and that entire empire was was largely influenced by and, and continued to propagate and do the same things that the Babylonian Empire did and so many empires before it, obsessed with sex and money and power. And we see this in Revelation 18 when when John actually describes what he sees, he describes Babylon this way in verse three, to summarize it for us this morning. For all nations have have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. The, the, The picture there is that they're drunk on sexual immorality and all kinds of it. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And we see it there, right? We see the sex and we see the money and we see the power and we see the, the, the propagation of all of it through the Roman Empire and through ungodly empires of the world. And later in one of his letters, John would say it this way in First John 2:16. "For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, there we have it, the desires of the eyes, what we can get, and the pride of life. It's not from the Father. It's from the world. It's from a world system. It's from worldly thinking. And what John is seeing, I believe, is John is seeing a day when Babylon is ultimately defeated. When Babylon is ultimately defeated, when God's people are saved from the oppressive governmental systems that are pressing them down, when God's people are saved from ungodly and worldly cultures that are against God and against his people and against his church, ungodly worldly cultures that are similarly obsessed with the distortion of things like sex and money and power and all of the brokenness and all of the destruction that comes from our abuse as human beings of all of those things. And I believe this, when we ask the question, what are we saved from? This is the salvation they are praising God in heaven for. And this is the salvation that we should be praising God for while we're here as sojourners on earth. We should be praising God for our final and our ultimate salvation from corrupt government systems that press down God's people, that peddle sex and money and power, and propagate cultures and and nurture cultures that do the very same that are antagonistic to God and antagonistic to His people. They're praising God that one day God will finally save us out of all of it. And my sense is that this would be good news for us. That even though we live in what I believe is one of the best countries in the history of the world, even though we believe we we live in a place that affords us more freedoms than many people in the history of the world have ever had, it's easy to see how the culture that we live in is... Well, just as obsessed with the things of Babylon, isn't it? We abuse the same things just as much, don't we? As much as any nation, as much as any culture, as much as any empire in the history of the world. And this picture we get in heaven is that they are praising God for the reality that there will be a day, there will be a day when there's no more fornication, that people aren't having sex before marriage. And, and, and letting it influence the way that they live in marriage someday. There'll be no more adultery, like, like, like because of our sexual passions, like families will not be ripped apart by infidelity. There will be no more pornography and the objectification of the human body, people that created in God's image, and all of the nasty and gross and atrocious things that that leads to eventually. There'll be no prostitution, there'll be no abuse. There will be a day where there will be no rape, there will be no sexual objectification of human beings, and children even. No more sex trafficking, no more gender fluidity, no more gender mutilization of children in the name of progress. There will be a day where that is gone, where God snuffs it all out once and for all. It is over. And we should be praising God for that. That will be a very good day. Yeah. That will be a very good day. And there will be a day where there is no more greed. Can you imagine what companies like BlackRock and and all of those have done to the systems and structures of the world? And they're not the only one, there are so many more. And unfortunately, I just mentioned them, so that's on tape, right? (laughs) But the reality is there are large companies and corporations that are so greedy for so much and they use it for this perverse purposes. There will be a day where there's no more cheating, there's no more stealing. There's no more forced labor. There are no more children that are forced to work for free or for next to nothing. There are no more Ponzi schemes where people lose their money. There's no more poverty. There's no more huge distinction between rich and poor because of the way we abuse our money and our resources. There will be a day, and that is going to be a good day. And we should be praising God for that, that He, he is working toward that end. He's working out redemptive history, and there will be a day... We enjoy that kind of life and there won't be a day where there's no more oppression in terms of power and there's no more marginalization and there's no more corrupt government systems. There's no more brutal dictators. (laughs) There's no more Illuminati, right? There, There will be a day when it's all over. And the Bible says that that day is coming and that we should be praising God for that day. And we also know as Christians that for now, we can be praising God for for a bit more than that, because our salvation is more than just that day. You see, as Christians, when we talk about salvation, we talk about our salvation past, present, and future. We talk about the reality, not the idea, the reality that God has saved us and that God is saving us, and that God actually one day will completely finally save us once and for all from all of this. And so as Christians this morning, as we gather this morning, we should be praising God that He has saved us from a worldly way of thinking. That Peter says it this way in his first letter that I mentioned a few minutes ago, you're a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, you're a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies, the praise, of him who called you out of darkness and into his glorious light, that as Christians we are not perfect, we are just forgiven, that we have been called out of the darkness that sees the abuse of things like sex and money and power, and many of us that was our story. We were living abusing those things, not stewarding those things. We were using people, and we were using money, and we were using power in ungodly ways. We were in darkness, just like the rest of everyone else. But God has called us out of that darkness and into His marvelous light through the truth of His Gospel. That now we're praising God because we don't have to live in darkness. We're actually no longer slaves to sin, so that we need to obey it, Paul told the Romans, who lived in a culture of Rome that was filled with abuse of sex and money and power. He says, you're no longer slaves to this sin. That life is over for you. We should be praising God that He has saved us. We should be praising God that He is saving us from worldly influences and antagonism. I think this is part of the reason why Jesus includes in the Lord's prayer. And lead us not into temptation, because, but deliver us from evil. Because these realities are an already not yet reality for us as Christians. They were already saved out of all of these things, out of darkness and into his light. But there's a not yet, not yet that day of Revelation 19. And until then, we pray daily, lead us not into temptation, because it is out there and deliver us from evil, because it is out there, and temptation is tempting us, and evil is coming for us, and so Jesus says, pray this way. He is saving us daily, and we could never know all of the things that He saved us out of in a given day, much less a given week, or month, or year. How many things we'll never know that God has saved us from. He is saving us, and we should be praising Him because He will save us from these worldly influences and antagonisms. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Praise God, amen? Praise God, he has saved us, he is and he will. There's a second thing this morning that we should be praising God for, and it's actually related to the first. It's in verse two, where it says, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality And has avenged on her the blood of his servants. That sounds like a kid's book, right? Nice children kids book. This morning, I think the second thing we think, see, is that we will praise the Lord for his judgment in heaven. We will praise the Lord for his judgment in heaven, and so we should praise the Lord for his judgment here on earth. And I know that's a hard phrase to hear. Even as I'm saying it, I can imagine that could be a hard phrase maybe for you to hear. We will praise the Lord for His judgment in heaven. Apparently it's there. So we should be praising the Lord for His judgment here on earth. Look, I, I think a helpful way to think about this is that if Jesus is saving us out of something or He's saving us from something, He's also judging that thing. He's saving us from something, that He's also judging. He is just judge, and He is judging these things. Listen, if hearing about the injustices that are committed through the abuse of sex and money and power, the ones that I mentioned this morning, and there are more, and we could be more graphic, if hearing about these injustices makes you angry, can you imagine how angry it makes God? God is angry with, <clears throat> with a perfect righteous anger, and I've, we've, we've said this before, but I believe righteous anger is being angry at the right thing for the right reason and, and acting out against it in the right way. It's being angry at the right thing for the right reason and acting out against it in the right way. And God is always righteously angry when he's angry. He is always— angry at the right thing, the abuse of things that He created like sex and money and power for good, which we'll talk about in a moment. God is righteously angry at the right things and for the right reasons, because He is a holy and perfect God, and because sin destroys our relationship with Him and each other. And God is angry—if He's angry, He is angry—about righteously angry in the right way. His judgments are always right and true. And in the book of Revelation, this is worked out in, in this section, what we call the seven bowls, right? There's these judgments that come up in the chapters leading up to Revelation 17, 18, and 19. And the number seven, I believe, is the number of perfection in the Bible. And this is not a sermon on the entire book of Revelation this morning, but I got to tell you that, that God's, God's trying to communicate, I will perfectly judge all of this unrighteousness. And one day I will perfectly and finally judge all sin and rebellion against God and His people and His values and His ways and His kingdom. God is perfect and everything He does is perfect, including His judgment. You might be um, a longtime Christian, but maybe you're a new Christian or maybe you're someone that walked in thinking like, I wonder what God is like, and this morning you're thinking something like, Matt, I'll tell you the truth, I'm not interested in a God of vengeance. I'm not interested in a God that is bent on judgment. I'm not—I don't—I'm not interested in a God like that. And I would say to you, I'm not interested in a God that wouldn't punish sin any more than I'm interested in a judge who would turn a blind eye to crime every time and never punish it. I'm not interested in a God who would see the abuse of children and never do anything about it, ever. I'm not interested in a God who would see all the, in, the injustices and the pain in our world and would never finally do anything about it. Just as much as I'm not interested in the judge who would see a rapist on trial and all the evidence is clearly presented, and he is as guilty as anything, and the judge would just turn a blind eye and let him walk away. I'm not interested in that judge. I'm interested in a God who is perfectly loving and perfectly just at the same time, and that is the God of the Bible. And there's no way that God is perfectly loving if he's not also perfectly just. The most unloving thing in the world would be to not judge all of the injustices in the world. I think everybody intuitively knows this. I think everybody intuitively knows this. The book of Proverbs is a book of sayings. It's a book of wise sayings. And when we look at the book of Proverbs, we just say like, yeah, those are wise sayings that everyone reads and goes like, yeah, that, that makes sense. We, we agree with that. That's just a wise saying. And in Proverbs 21, 15, it says it this way, When justice is done, it's a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. I think you can read that. I think we all read that and say, yeah. Yeah, when righteousness is done, it's, it's, it's a, when justice is done, it's a joy to the righteous. We say, like, yes, we praise God for that. We praise God that justice was done and, and it is a terror to evildoers and it should be. Now this morning, um, I can imagine that some of you are like, you're, you're struggling a little bit right now because you're like, wait a minute, where's, what about mercy? And there's this sort of tension between justice and mercy that's going on inside of you right now. And you're saying, no, 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 but our, we're supposed to be merciful and, and we're talking about God's justice and like, uh, how does that actually work? And I say that's a, that's a longer sermon, but for now, Jesus has dealt with in, the evil and, in an ultimate way at the cross, and he will deal, deal with evil in a final way when, when he returns and when we see this sort of scene of Revelation 19. And again, between now and then, we pray things like, lead us not in temptation and deliver us from evil. At the same time, we also pray, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. As Christians, we model both of those things. We, we are praying, Lord, lead us not in temptation, because it's out there, and deliver us from evil, because it is out there. And we're surrounded by it, and it's coming against us as God's people. And yet, at the same time, we would pray like Jesus, Father, forgive them, the men that did the most evil thing in the history of the world, for they know not what they do. And as Christians, we can, we can rejoice when justice is done and we can pray for God's mercy on people at the same time, all the while in the background being reminded that Paul told the Romans who were living under an extremely oppressive empire as Christians, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The God is keeping accounts And God is not going to let injustice go. He is not the judge that judges with a blind eye. Just in case we were wondering if God's judgment is an appropriate thing for us to praise him for, (laughs) he says it again in verse 3 in a bit more graphic way. Once more they cried out, hallelujah. They're saying, praise the Lord. Why? The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. (laughs) There's this picture of this this burning figure of immorality that symbolizes the immorality of the world, I believe, in some ways. And it goes up forever and ever, that God's judgment is apparently so important to him and so important to his character, so important for him to know that he is perfectly loving and perfectly just, that he's going to allow his judgment to be observed forever that we're gonna see it forever so that we forever know our God is perfectly loving and perfectly just, and we praise God for that. We will praise God for that there. We should be praising him for it here. There's a third thing we should be praising God for, a third way we should be praising God here on earth in light of the way they praise him in heaven. And um, well, this one will be a little bit more easy to receive, okay? It's in verses four to five, look at it with me. It says, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah, praise God, for the throne came a voice, from from the throne came a voice saying, praise to our God, praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. I mean, the third thing we see this morning is that we will give worship to God alone through praise in heaven, and so we should give worship to God alone through praise here on earth. We see this image in heaven of them falling down before the throne, that God alone is there on the throne, and he alone is the object of worship. There are no other objects of worship. There's no other need that, that, we're not bending our knee to anyone or anything else. He alone is the object of worship. And you might be thinking, yeah, but isn't that what we're doing now? Isn't that the point now? And I'd say, it is the point now, but it's not actually what we're always doing now. Because even though we praise God because he saved us from sin and the effects of sin, in an ultimate sense, we actually still struggle and wrestle with sin, don't we? Even sin and the, associated and attached to things like sex and money and power. And frankly, we tend to make idols out of these things. What is an idol? This is my definition. I I just wrote down anything or anyone we are devoted to before God, other than God or before him. And that seems redundant and it is. Anything or anyone that we are devoted to before God, other than him, or before Him. If you're devoted to someone before God or something before God, that thing is an idol. If you're devoted to something other than God, let's say you're like, my, tr- my true devotion is to Him, but you're also devoted to this other thing in a worshipful kind of way, that is also an idol. It's been said that an idol is anything that's a good thing that we make an ultimate thing, or anything that's a good thing that we make a God, lowercase case God thing. It's something that we or someone that we worship. And I just want to be clear this morning that sex and money and power are not in and of themselves bad things. God created sex to be enjoyed between one man and one woman for one lifetime. That is God's design for sex. And God designed it for procreation, and God designed it for enjoyment, and God designed it for, for union between a man and his wife. One man, one woman for one lifetime. Sex is not a bad thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's a good thing that was created by God. And money is not a bad thing. Money is a thing that was created by God. It was created by God for us to steward, to provide for our needs and for the needs of others. Jesus uh, says a lot about money, and, and one of the things that he says about money is that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and it is. But if that's true, and I believe it is, that the opposite is also true, that the godly stewardship of money is also the root of all kinds of good. That's God's intention, is for us to steward our money well, to provide for our families, and to do good in His name. Money is actually, it's it's not a bad thing inherently. And power is not a bad thing inherently. Power is actually to be, again, stewarded. It's to be stewarded for the protection of people and to create order, and that's a good thing. God has given His people dominion over everything on the earth, it says in Genesis. That is a form of power. That our power is derived from God. It's not derived from us, it's derivative power that's derived from God, and God has given us Places of power and authority, and we're supposed to use those places of power and authority, steward them well, to protect people, not exploit them. To create order, not chaos. Actually, God created, ordained power is a good thing. But sex, money, and power tend to be the things that so often become ultimate things for us. In many ways, the list is too long to mention this morning of all the ways that we abuse sex and money and power, and we idolize those things. But again, writing to the Roman church that was well, living in a culture that was filled with these things, in Romans chapter 1, Paul writes to the Roman church about this progression of the way that it happens, that we, we begin by worshiping God and the thing and stewarding the things he's given us, but then we actually end up distorting the things that he's given us and distorting our view of him and end up worshiping created things instead of the creator. He says, therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and of the creature rather than the creator. He was blessed forever. Amen. We can be we can tend toward idolatry. Luther said that the human heart is basically an idolatry factory. We just sort of keep on producing them and when they don't work and they're done, we just make new ones. There are no idols in heaven. (laughs) And there's no idolatry in heaven. There's only perfect and pure devotion to God and worship of God. And we see the picture of it here. (laughs) And this posture of praise in heaven is the posture of the praise that God wants here on earth. That we will not perfectly worship Him here and now, but by God's grace we can purely do that. As best we can by God's grace, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. That our hearts are only pure because of what Christ has done for us and forgiving our sin and reorienting our hearts and our minds toward Him. And so we can enter into worship together as God's people this morning. We can praise God this morning with, with what we call wholehearted devotion. It's wholehearted that it could possibly be this side of heaven, and we should praise the Lord for that. Amen? What a privilege we have to be released from our idols and to be able to worship God and Him alone the way He designed us to. There's a fourth and a final thing we should praise God for, and it's in our final verses, verses 6 to 9. Then I heard this, what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! Praise God, praise the Lord. Why? For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give glory to him, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with a fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. I think as we end our time together this morning here, the the big idea here is this, that we will praise the Lord for our delight in him and his people in heaven, And so we should praise the Lord for our delight in him and his people here on earth. The marriage of the Lamb is just an incredible reality and it's such an incredible analogy. It's such an incredible picture that God gives us. I don't know if you've been to, um, to many weddings. Um, most of you probably have. I've been to a number of weddings. Uh, this week, um, my, my son's football team had a, a game on Friday night, and we showed up to it, and the DJ there was a, a DJ that had done a lot of, a lot of weddings that, that we've been a part of, that I've been a part of, and even weddings that I've officiated in. We were talking about just the way that things have grown, and he was showing me pictures on his phone of the now elaborate weddings that he is doing where it's not just the music, but it's, it's the dance floor, and it's the lights, and it's the LED TVs, and, it's, I mean, and it would blow your mind the things that, that, that he does now, the, the kinds of celebrations that he helps to create. And I would, I've been thinking about this all week, of course, and I've been thinking about the marriage of this idea of this giant wedding and this giant wedding party, and as is, is, is brilliant and amazing and beautiful, and I mean as lavish. The stuff is just pouring off the tables. It's just, it literally is obscene. How would anyone spend that much money in one moment on one evening, but like they are doling it out. And it looked amazing. <laughs> the biggest, most extravagant parties like I've ever seen on these pictures. It's incredible, and it's nothing compared to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's like Del Taco, you know? It's nothing like—it's compared. Like, it's like having your wedding at Del Taco, not just eating it. That's what I'm meaning. It's like, it's like that. It's like there's, there's no comparison. The marriage supper of the Lamb is going to be the largest, grandest, most amazing party in the, in the history of eternity. Jesus is going to be the guest of honor. And we are going to be enjoying Him, and enjoying one another, and enjoying the best of all the things that He's created for us. (laughs) And it's going to be amazing, and I can't wait. Heaven is going to be a little different than I think we all think it is. And as Christians, I think we should throw the biggest parties and the best parties. I don't know why sometimes Christians are known for people who are kind of like tight and cold and... That should never be. Why would that ever be when God has done all of this for us? He saved us out of so many things. He saved us into the family of God. He's given us fellowship with each other. We have have such a good time together, enjoy so many good things together. Christians should throw the biggest and the best, most elaborate parties there are. And you know, one of the reasons I'm really excited we're partnering with Search Ministries for this open forum series is they believe the exact same thing. And if you signed up for the, the open, the open Forum series through search, and if you've been one of those 30, 40 people that's been trained and has been praying for your 10 friends, I'm telling you right now, you're going to show up to an amazing event You're going to show up to a night with the best food and all kinds of great drinks, and you're going to show up to a place that you just want to be and hang out, and you're going to invite your your friends and your family there and your coworkers, and we're going to show them together alongside the people at search that as Christians, we have a good time being together. We love being together. We love Jesus. He is always the guest of honor. The focus is always on him, but he's allowed us to enjoy one another, and it's amazing. And This is why hospitality is one of the values of the Village Church. This is the reason. Because God's invited us to himself and into relationship with himself and each other. He's invited us in to an amazing life together as his people in the family of God. And we want to model something of that here. And so after church this morning, we get to have our first Sunday. And if you're a guest with us, we we have a first Sunday every Sunday. David Hughes is calling our lunch this afternoon, the dogathon. And I probably could not do this as well as he can do it, but a jogathon is you're just running constantly. Here you're just eating constantly. You're just eating all kinds of dogs with all kinds of toppings. You don't have to move. You just move your mouth. That's all you have to do. And we're gonna have we're gonna have great food and we're gonna have a great time. <laughs> I told him I would try to work this into the sermon. That was my effort, okay? That was—I promised him I'll work it into the sermon. That was it. David, you're welcome. So that was it. But uh, we're going to have a great time together, and this is by design, right? What we're doing together on Sunday morning at First Sunday is just a foreshadowing. It's trying to help us see that we're going to be doing this together for a long time. Last night we had people from church in our home and we had good food and things to drink and we had a good experience together and we we talked about Jesus and Christ and we talked about education and ministry and we talked about the evangelism of the world and discipleship and it was, I loved it. And I went to bed praising God, saying, God, thank you. Thank you that you've given me this house. Thank you that you've given us these resources. Thank you that you've given us these friends. Thank you that you've invited us this opportunity to have a relationship. Thank you. Praise you. Praise God that we get to share all these wonderful things together. And we're gonna share them together this morning. But before we do, we're gonna pray. We're gonna pray together. We're gonna sing together. Um, we are gonna give of our tithes and offerings together this morning. We're gonna take communion together. It's first Sunday, so we're gonna pass communion. But before we do, we're gonna pray. We're gonna pray together this morning, and we're gonna pray together out loud. We're gonna pray the prayer of Revelation 19 together. The words will be on the screen for you. It'll be on the screen for me, and before we do, I just want to say, this is all really good news for us this morning, I hope it is for you, and I think our good news this morning is something like this, that we can praise the Lord for our salvation, and all of its benefits, God has gifted us so many great benefits through our salvation, because of the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has come to live a sinless life, free from sin, all the sin that we live. He came to die a substitutionary death on the cross and in our place and for our sins, that He took the punishment, He took the ultimate wrath of God on Himself for all of our sin. And when we place our faith and our hope and trust in Him as the Son of God who's come to be our Savior and to save us from our sin through His death on the cross and through the proof of it through His resurrection, that we're forgiven for our sin and now we're free to live the life that God intended for us from the beginning, not slaves to idolatry and all kinds of sin, but, but free to be in fellowship with God and His people, to praise God and rejoice in our salvation, to enjoy all the good things that God's created for us. This passage in Revelation talks about this sort of sea of voices and this multitude of voices. And I'm not sure if we have a multitude or sea, but we've got, you know, we've got kind of a pond going. You know, we've got, we've got, we've got, we've got, we've got some folks here this morning. So I want to ask you just, you know, speak loudly as, as we pray this prayer, to use your voice, and I'm also going to ask you to do something that might feel a little awkward, but I'm going to ask you to say hallelujah when we get to that really loudly, and I bolded the words for you, and on Easter Sunday, I asked you to do something, and, and like, you stepped up, and we, we, you did it, and I just want to say, if you're a guest, like, we don't normally do stuff like this, but every now and then we do, and so if you're uncomfortable, I don't know, join us the best you can, you know. Um, we're going to shout out hallelujah when, it, when the word comes, we're going to pray the rest of the words together, but we're going to pray these things out loud. We're going to pray these things out loud together, and um, we're going to be grateful for what God's done for us. Would you pray with me? Let's say it together. And we're going to start with a shout of hallelujah. So you ready? Join me. Here we go. One, two, three. Hallelujah! hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Hallelujah! Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah! Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And we say amen and hallelujah to all of these things, Lord. This is our prayer this morning. We know that you hear. We know that you answer and that you have answered by saving us, that you are saving us and you will. We thank you. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.